It's Wednesday, November 9th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Red Ripple. No, not just the second baseman for the 1917 Boston Bean Eaters Baseball Club, but the best phrase I have heard to describe the Republican underperformance in the midterms. Underperformance, but still likely to take over the House. The New York Times estimates they'll have 223 seats to the Democrats' 211. But the Times did stop updating their model since, oh, about 4 o'clock this morning. So we turn to the gistometer. Beep, 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 222. I don't know. What do I know? I just know that the Republicans will most likely win. They definitely did worse than they had expected to. Question is why? To answer, let's go over what was factoring into the assumption that the red ripple would ripen. It wasn't just the polls, though polls did have Republicans with a lead on the generic ballot. I know, I know, no one votes on a generic ballot, but the size of the Republican lead suggested a pickup of many more seats than the Republicans will get. Only, we should add, there were a couple of late-breaking versions of the generic ballot that showed that the Democrats had basically evened things up. A couple showed they pulled ahead. Hmm. To that I say, hmm. But also we got to factor in history. We thought there'd be something more of a wave because in 22 midterm elections between 1934 and 2018, the president's party has averaged a loss of 28 House seats and four Senate seats. And then there's this. Look at who retired. Of the retiring House members, 22 were Democrats, 10 were Republicans. So even Democrats were acknowledging this is not a good atmosphere for us. We're out of here. Same thing went on in reverse in 2018, and it did augur well for the Democrats then, but not so fast. Republicans have underperformed what we call the fundamentals, the presidential approval rating and the economy. There are lots of reasons why. We'll get into a lot of them in the spiel and much more in-depth on tomorrow morning's Not Even Mad. But I do want to caution any giddy gist listeners who are quite happy that the Democrats did well. I think about the phrase political hobbyism, how much of our reaction is viewed as politics as sport and how much as politics as power. And remember in 2018, there was a debate. Was it a blue lap pool or was it a blue wave? No, nah, hell, it was a blue tsunami. It seemed at first like maybe meh, but it turned out to be mwahaha. And I remember the guys on Pod Save America being very vocal early. This was a wave. We did it. And I remember assessing all the information and going on the gist the next day and saying, yeah, this really was a wave. Call it a wave, people. But do you remember all the freedom, liberty, legislation, life-changing events between 2018 and 2020? No, because it was still the last of the Trump years. And the Senate, with a very nice map, was still held by the Republicans. So it gave partisans a shot of adrenaline, but it didn't give them, the Democratic partisans, tangible power. In the 2020 election, which featured a Democratic underperformance in the House, was said to be a sign of strength for Republicans. Republicans were pretty happy. They crowed, but for Trump, maybe we would have taken the House. But you didn't. And as a result, Democrats got to convene the January 6th commission and pass the stimulus and pass infrastructure, etc. So in 2020, the Democrats didn't meet expectations, but won the House. This year, it looks like the Democrats exceeded expectations, but probably won't hold the House. It's better to hold the House. But if you're the minority, it is better to be a more sizable minority 
a surprisingly more sizable minority than was expected. On the show today, some results we've been talking about for some time and some you may not have even known about. That is in the spiel. But first, a very appropriate interview on a raucous political day. Amanda Ripley is the author of High Conflict, a book that looks at warring parties and the psychology that perpetuates the conflict. She follows in the book Chicago gang members, Colombian rebels, and a former mediator who got himself embroiled in a California city governance conflict, more town than city. I couldn't help but apply her lessons to our politics and my life, so I am happy, very happy. I've been meaning to do this for a while. I'm happy to bring her insight to you. Amanda Ripley, author of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Amanda Ripley's High Conflict was the best book I read in 2021. It was important to me. It challenged my assumptions. And it was just like everything Amanda Ripley does. Excellent journalism, excellent storytelling. The thesis of this is that there are identifiable spirals that combatants get into and they can't extract themselves from. And then like the twister from Wizard of Oz, it carries everyone away, even though the dynamics that each side is contributing to the energy that fuels the very vortex. But you don't recognize it when you're in there floating around with Toto. And not just because I like the book, but because she is writing, maybe without meaning to, exactly about this political moment, I wanted to have Amanda Ripley on. Amanda, welcome to The Gist. Thank you, Mike. It's good to be here with you. So what I see you doing is speaking disquieting truths even to our side. Now, everyone listening can say, oh, by our side, he means my side. Sure, let's stipulate that for the sake of understanding the thesis I'm putting down. You're speaking disquieting truths to even us, the side of the righteous, the side who wants to protect democracy, the side of rightness in the grand social battle we find ourselves in or thrust upon us, but we might not always understand it if we're in the middle of it, that you are actually giving giving us advice about what we're doing to contribute to this moment. Do you see yourself as slyly doing that? That is my hope, right? Uh, ideally. And sometimes it's funny to me that you know people will read the book and say, do you think this applies to politics? And I'm like, Good God, that is the only reason I wrote it. So I don't know if I came at it too obliquely. But yeah, I'm trying not to hit you over the head with it because I don't think that works, number one. And number two, this, you know, this is complicated. I don't have all the answers. I just do think that for me, looking at other intractable conflicts, whether they're gang conflicts or civil war in Colombia or you know ugly divorces, was super helpful to understanding our political conflict just because it is really hard, like you said, when you're right up in it. Right. And so I think there are three levels to understanding and appreciating your book. Maybe there's four and I only got to three. But one is to realize, you know, it's more than just two people bickering. There's a real dynamic and a self-propelling dynamic there. Oh, that's interesting from a psychological level. Two is to identify people who you don't agree with or can't really put yourself in the place of and say, oh, so it applies to FARC rebels. Oh, so it applies to gang leaders. That's really interesting how you can apply these kind of deeper psychological dynamics to real world situations. But the third is, and now apply it to ourselves. So again, I don't know if you're thinking of it like this or people who read the book came to it and came away with those conclusions, but was that part of your construction? 
Yes, I mean, absolutely. Because my whole thing is, you know, I, this is the third book I've written. They're all the same formula. It's for some reason taken me until now to realize this. But basically, I run up against a really wicked problem that no matter how much reporting I do for my regular journalism, I just can't seem to get my head around. And so my whole trick is to go find people who've been through it, who've been through the woods and out to the other side. And, you know, whether that's people who survived disasters or people who have studied, have gone to public high school in other countries, which is my second book, or this one, which is like, what happens when you get trapped in really toxic, dysfunctional what they call malignant conflict. That is an actual phrase in the research. And how in God's name do you get out? How do you get to a healthier kind of conflict? So you don't surrender, you don't give up, you don't change your mind, but you get to a place where the conflict is actually useful and you can sleep at night and you aren't making a ton of mistakes. And so finding those people gives me a lot of hope. So that was the, the explicit goal, which is like, what did you do first, second, third? And can we apply that here? So- how it works is we then, the readers of your book, the people who uh, cotton to the information that you have, oh, wow, I see that. I see how that could apply to the Crips. I see that how that could apply to the Bloods. And then we go and read our newspaper whose tagline is democracy dies in darkness, or maybe even we write for that newspaper. And maybe we fail to see how this can apply to us. I've talked about this on my show, and maybe it's the most challenging thing. We, as people who support the work of the January 6th Commission, let's say, look at the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and those of their ilk and worry about a civil war and gird ourselves, not through actual arms, but psychologically, that the other side really, maybe not Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski, but large swaths of the other side wouldn't mind killing us. We have a reaction to that, and that perpetuates high conflict. Or do you think I'm being unfair? Because as a journalist who covers these issues, you have to stand steadfast against some of these radical elements, and they really are dangerous, and democracy really does die in darkness. <laughs> so, okay. You probably knew I was going to say this, and I hate to be predictable, but I don't think it's either or. I mean, look, you got to hold conflict entrepreneurs and violent people accountable, full stop. And, and... Getting righteous about it, having this sense that your group is morally superior, um, getting more and more segregated from one another, um, you know, making huge mistakes about each other, those things are not helpful, right? So I don't know that the Washington Post tagline and January 6th committee are, are equivalent, right? I mean, I do think you have to do both. And this is hard, right? It's hard for me to kind of hold it all in my head at once. But, you know, one thing I have learned is if you think that just doing the accountability and pressure and organizing will be enough, you are sadly mistaken. So you have to understand each other better. You have to understand yourself, the problem and the other side much, much better. And you have to try constantly to avoid the very seductive magnetic pull of high conflict, because if you don't. It's not like it's you know, because it's the morally right thing that I'm making. I mean, that is true, but I'm not making that argument. Because if you don't, you will begin to harm the thing you went into the fight to protect. I mean, I've seen this so many times, whether it's an environmental activist or a politician or a guerrilla fighter. It's always the same in high conflict. Eventually, you start to mimic the behavior of your opponents. You start to make so many mistakes 
uh, that you miss huge opportunities and you start to harm the thing you went into the fight to protect, whether it's your kids or, you know, your country. So let's imagine, say, an MSNBC viewer who I'm going to say rightly is worried about the Proud Boys and and is watching this Oath Keepers trial and also finds it pretty disquieting that our former president didn't outright rebuke them. These are all, I think we would both agree, absolutely correct things to think about. What are some of the assumptions or some of the further thoughts or some of the beliefs that you might add, that this viewer might add on to these thoughts that could approach high conflict? Maybe common thoughts that I even hear expressed among this sort of viewer. Right. So for me, here's what I do to sort of check my own thinking around this, because again, I just think it's very hard to resist once high conflict gets going. One thing is anytime I start thinking in the words us and them, right? Like they believe, they want, they uh, want to destroy America or democracy or whatever. And I remind myself that I, I cannot generalize about 70 million people who voted a certain way in, a, in an election. That's just like de facto madness, right? I could talk about specific individuals. I could talk about specific leaders of specific parties, right? Um, but until I know more about people, I just... This is a really common trap. And so I think it's when you start generalizing, and especially when you believe your group is, you and your group are morally superior, and there's a kind of purity test that sets in, right, where everybody has to kind of conform to the orthodoxy and that contact with the other group is makes you impure. That is very, very dangerous. And there's a quote that I often think of that Curtis Toller, the former gang leader who does violence interruption now in Chicago, he said to me, you know, I think anytime there's a better than and a less than, there's always room for war. So I think it's that kind of moral hierarchy um, that particularly when you're generalizing about big groups of people, you don't know. Uh, that's where, where we get into real trouble. So if I were to say to think that the 2020 election was not stolen and we got a fair result is better than to think that it was stolen. I'm falling into a high conflict trap. Okay, then you're talking about which is more factual. Yeah. That's an important dimension, right? But I'm talking more about like, who is a better inherent human, right? So that's where we get into trouble, um, where we start to have fixed mindset about our opponents. We think they will never change. And we think that we start to generalize about what they're doing, make a lot of assumptions that just aren't supported by the facts. And, you know, I re I'm reminded of this every time I, you know, I'm fortunate to get to interview people that I disagree with profoundly on many things. It's like, there's a lot I don't know about what they're thinking and vice versa. And it doesn't mean that I now agree, right? But this, we've got to get out of this idea that it's either bipartisan harmony or what we've got, you know, that's... That's madness. So one aspect of high conflict is that every single example of it, both sides think they're right. And I think, I don't want to get you wrong. I don't want to mischaracterize your opinions. You might look at some of these high conflicts and actually very much agree with one side, even down the line. Yeah, the, the facts are more on your side. But you also point out that doesn't matter if you want the high conflict to end. Right, right. This is diabolical, right? Like it kind of sucks. Let's just acknowledge it's it. Diabolical. Like let's not let's not pretend it's an easy thing to to reckon with. I mean, in a lot of ways, my life was easier when I was more in the binary of sort of us versus them and good versus evil. Um, I but I wouldn't trade it for the world because 
it's a miserable place to live over time. Um, but I think it was easier because things were clearer. And there's a reality of humans, which is we don't do great in times of high anxiety and uncertainty. And so we tend to do what psychologists call splitting, which is sort of splitting the world into good and evil, us and them, right? And that's very reassuring. And we've obviously got a ton of conflict entrepreneur leaders and pundits who are exploiting the anxiety and fear that's out there by offering us a splitting narrative that's very compelling, right? So I think, you know, it's very, very hard to resist. And if there is one thing that I want people to remember, you know, having for six years just been deeply immersed in the study and experience of dysfunctional conflict, I can tell you there's one lesson that I keep having to relearn, which is any intuitive thing you do to get out of high conflict will almost certainly make it worse. So you really have to do counterintuitive things. And that's hard. And that takes practice. So what's an intuitive thing that people do? Intuitive thing is I, this game. Do you ever play this game in your head where you, you think this will be the thing that convinces them, right? Yeah. The kill so shot. You're like, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So whether it's, you know, impeachment or indictment or, you know, and I'm, again, I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things. Go ahead and do them. And no that that is not going to change the high conflict dynamics, right? So it's like saying, um, you know, if, if I know there's going to be a hurricane, um, I'm going to do a bunch of things to prepare for that. And I know there's still going to be a hurricane, right? So being aware that this is not going to be the thing that convinces people uh, that you are right and they have been wrong. That's just not how this works at this level. And that's the, that's the kind of key thing that's been really helpful for me personally and professionally is to recognize that, this is not a normal conflict. So once conflict gets to this level of high conflict, where there is an us and a them, where there are conflict entrepreneurs, where there is widespread perceived humiliation, all of these things, people behave very differently and groups behave very differently. So you can't apply your normal rules of physics, right, to a high conflict. And it's almost helpful to sort of stop yourself. And sometimes I do this when I try to be helpful to politicians or superintendents or you know, ministers, all these people just who are just trapped right now in high conflict is to literally say, what is the opposite of your intuition right now? Like, what would that be? And, and I'm not saying you're always going to do that, right? But like, at least consider it. Um, so an example would be, you know, uh, Governor Spencer Cox of Utah, who I know you talked about on the show with Rob Willer, right, uh, recently. So he came on How To and we talked about how he did that ad with his opponent and why and what happened afterward. And he's always trying to resist the forces of high conflict. And one of the things that he struggles with increasingly, right, is Twitter, right? So that's, that's gotten harder and harder, he said, to resist. But, you know, then he had people protesting at his house during the pandemic, which was really hard when your kids are there and you just feel threatened and angry. Um, and so, you know, his intuition, which would be my intuition, is to get um, angry and defensive. And so what he did was very purposefully try to do the opposite. And this isn't, again, this isn't all, always going to work, but he went out with his son and distributed little cups of hot chocolate, right? So there's this beautiful moment where he walks outside and everyone's like, whoa, what's happening? <laughs> you know, and like the plates are spinning in the air because he's taken them by surprise. He's, he's stepped out of the dance of high conflict. And that doesn't mean he agrees with them. It doesn't mean they stop protesting, right? But he's interrupted that dance. 
I want to make sure that uh, I'm not letting you off the hook by framing your answers in absolutes, such as, well, once we begin to think that the other side is all bad. Okay, says my hypothetical MSNBC viewer. I, of course, know that the Republican Party isn't all bad. It seems like maybe Lisa Murkowski is someone you could work with, and look what Liz Cheney did. However, they're almost all bad, or the vast majority of them deny the election. What about a situation like that? You know, one of the things I think about a lot is that um, in South Africa, when there was a lot of uncertainty about how the conflict was going to go during apartheid and other things, one of the things that the people working to prevent violence there had to do was to convince both sides that the other side was not going away. You know, the, the, the white people were not going to pack it up and go back to Europe. You know, the black people were not going to, you know, migrate to another country. It's just, we are stuck with each other. And one of the hard things about high conflict is you just don't want to accept that. And uh, William Urey, right, who right. does... Uh, and also to interrupt, I guess yeah. one of the myths about the American political system is, well, we could just beat them in, all in the elections. That's, we'll get our way then. And that, that'll never happen. Right. I mean, how many times do we have to watch this kind of yo-yoing back and forth before we realize we are stuck with each other, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> like it or not. And I know you don't, most of you. This is it. And so William Urey, who's a, a negotiator who works on really violent conflicts all over the world, he has this nice quote where he says, you know, there's no winning this marriage. You know, we are stuck with each other. We can get divorced, but we have kids together, right? So I think there's a lot of nice analogies that are helpful, at least to me, between high conflict politics and high conflict divorce. And the reality is, if you got kids together, you're going to have to deal with each other. And so we have got to find ways to deal with each other as humans with some baseline level of decency where things are going to get worse and worse for all of us and especially for our kids. And tomorrow, we continue the conversation with Amanda Ripley, author of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. We will talk about how to fight back against kind of crazy people and also the idea of a burgeoning civil war in America. How much credence, fear, attention, and vigilance should we give that notion? That is tomorrow on The Gist. And now the spiel of the 19 and a half hours of election coverage I watched last night, this morning, and also as I slept. There are a couple of clips, a couple of moments that get at the question, what just happened? They're backed by polls and exit surveys, but I think they illuminate what is the dawning narrative. And by the way, the narrative might well be the actual explanation. The two sometimes correlate. First, I bring you Mark Thiessen, Washington Post columnist and former chief speechwriter for President George W. Bush speaking on Fox. The voters are sa- looked at us and they said, we sent you a message in 2020. Did you not hear us? We don't want, they, they, they don't want, they, I, and I say this with great regret because I probably spilled more ink in the Washington Post than any human being defending Donald Trump during his presidency. Mm-hmm. I'm, not a, I'm not a never Trumper, but the election denial put people over the edge. Yeah. And the, the, and at some point, the voters said, we don't, this is, we, we don't want the chaos. We, we, we want conservative, they loved, they, in 2020, voters didn't reject Trumpism. They rejected Trump. I think that's right. 
There are these Republican tailwinds, but so many voters just scrunch their noses at the odor. And I do think it was the effort of Trump and Trumpism, the person, the cult, the elevating of the false narrative of a stolen election that turned off what should have been for Republicans an otherwise receptive audience. Over on MSNBC, Chris Hayes seemed to agree. There's some dark matter over here that's moving things around this electorate that doesn't look like the other electorate. I would submit Donald Trump is the dark matter and the force field of Donald Trump and the force field of the big lie and MAGAism and the closing message on democracy. There is a pro-democracy majority in America and an anti-Trump majority. But then fellow MSNBC host Joy Reid added this addendum. The history of the way elections work cannot survive a cataclysmic event in the lives of half yeah, the population. Yeah, yeah. And when you when you undo 40 years of history to say that anything but that yeah. moves the election, that an election can be historically normal when you have had a 40 year history. Now, at this point in the answer, I wasn't quite sure which cataclysm she meant. And I am not quite sure that I had different cataclysms to pick from I mean, was she talking about the cataclysm of the Republican Party post-Goldwater or something about the attack on the Capitol or interrupted elections or the pandemic? But then why was she saying 40 years? So I suspected it was the jettisoning of Roe versus Wade. And that is indeed where she was headed. My children have lived their entire lives with Roe v. Wade being the default, with owning your own body being the default. I am just a little surprised that it wasn't really obvious that when you take away a fundamental right from half the population, that the history of the way things work when the president has this approval rating or that approval rating is wiped away. And I think it it didn't, but it wouldn't. Rachel Maddow was right in that regard. The polls were picking up that abortion was an issue, second or third most important, but far behind inflation. Only there was one exit poll I saw that told us something different about how important inflation was to people. This was from the network's exit poll. They asked voters, has inflation caused your family a severe hardship, a moderate hardship, or not a hardship? And about 20% of the respondents said severe and about 20% of the respondents said, not a hardship. But of those, they all evened out. About three quarters who said, oh, it was severe, they voted Republican. And about three quarters who said, eh, not hard, they voted Democrat. And then the 60% in the middle saying moderate hardship, they broke only slightly for Republicans. Now, there's a lot of uh, research that says that exit polls actually aren't always so insightful. They're post hoc justifications. So if someone went into the voting booth and voted for a candidate who wasn't talking about inflation that much, that voter might then say to a pollster, oh yeah, I don't really care about inflation that much. Anyway, inflation, according to this though, seemed to be kind of a wash. Those who cared a lot voted Republican, but there were just as many who said they weren't affected and they voted Democrat. The idea was going in that inflation was supposed to be an overriding concern, but it seemed to pale in practice. Other ideas we were warned about, told to monitor. I told you to monitor some. Let's check in. Last week, I talked about the election deniers who might get their hands on the levers of election. Not a good night for most. I talked about Michigan election denier Secretary of State candidate Christina Camaro. She lost big. Minnesota Secretary of State election denier Kim Crockett. She lost big. There's a third of the vote left in Arizona. 
But Secretary of State candidate and election denier Mark Fincham trails by five. However, in Nevada, Secretary of State candidate and election denier Republican Jim Marchant is up by a point with more than three quarters of the vote in. So there's that. We also talked about the tactic among Democrats of plucking out extreme candidates on the other side because Democrats wanted to run against those guys and putting out ads for them to earn them the nomination. Here's one of those ads. John Gibbs is too conservative for West Michigan. Handpicked by Trump to run for Congress, Gibbs called Trump the greatest president and worked in Trump's administration with Ben Carson. Gibbs has promised... Well, Gibbs lost. And the more moderate Republican, Peter Mayer, probably would have won. None of the Republicans who ran for governor in Maryland, Pennsylvania, or Illinois won either. And they were all, I guess you could say, beneficiaries or subjects of this tactic. Same thing with General Don Bolduc. He lost the general pretty badly in the New Hampshire Senate race. The strategy worked to perfection, clean slate for the Democrats, but for the fact that the orchestrator of the strategy, Sean Patrick Maloney, who is chair of the DCCC, lost his own election, even though he didn't deploy this strategy to pick a ridiculously extreme opponent to run against. How did the ballot measures measure up? See what I did there? Yes, you do. Now hear what I do here. Democracy may have been on the ballot, I don't know, but weed definitely was on the ballot, passed in a few states, but the Dakotas each said, no, sir. Massachusetts voted against a measure that prohibited in-store automated and self-checkout sale of alcohol. Colorado, the leader in pot legalization, rejected wine. They voted against Prop 125, which would create a new fermented malt beverage and wine retailer license. Abortion rights were enshrined in Michigan, California, and Vermont, and not unenshrined in Kentucky and Montana, meaning that abortion rights that side won everywhere. There were two states where the houses of the state legislature were controlled by different parties. Virginia is one of those states. They vote in odd years. Minnesota was the other until yesterday. Yeah, this morning, Democrats are claiming victory in both the House and the Senate, meaning that they'll control the state legislature when it's back in session. Slavery is still being stamped out. Okay, you know what? Wait, let's kill the yakety sacks for the slavery part. Okay. So if you were asking, wait, slavery was legal in Vermont and Oregon? No, not really. But there was language in the state constitution or charters around slavery that implied that maybe it could be used under some circumstances. Like in Vermont, it says no person can serve any other, quote, as a servant, slave, or apprentice after arriving to the age of 21 years, unless bound by the person's own consent after arriving at such an age or bound by law for the payment of debts, damages, fines, costs, or the like. So anyway, clear implication there. Yeah, there are some, there's some circumstance where a servant, slave, or apprentice can exist. Same with the Oregon. This is what they were trying to take out of their state law. There shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the state, otherwise than as a punishment for a crime where the party shall have been duly convicted. So the vote was over whether we should say, you know what, even for punishment of a crime with Due conviction, still no slavery. So checking in in Vermont, taking this off the books, got 90% of the vote. In Oregon, banning slavery fully, it only passed 54 to 46. In fact, of Oregon's 36 counties, 29 voted to keep slavery, or at least the language of slavery. So Portland gets a lot of flack, but they really nailed it on the anti-slavery issue, as did the states of Tennessee and Alabama, but not Louisiana, no. 
They were asked to vote the word slavery, the concept, out of their state constitution, and no, we won't, got over 60% of the vote there. California voted on Props 26 and 27, legalizing sports betting, one at casinos and tracks, the other on Native American tribal land. You know, 41 per, by the way, let's, let's bring back the yakety sacks for this because some crazy stuff went on here. Only 41% of the vote is in, but both of these proposals failed spectacularly on Prop 27, legalizing it on tribal lands. 4.5 million people voted nah. And 900,000 so far voted okay. So if you had okay plus 65, you still lost. The gambling industry and the tribe spent, ready for this, over $600 million in their failed efforts. So that could work out to two or $300 per yes vote on Prop 27. And if you use that on, say, a Rams-Chargers parlay and then let it ride on LeBron with the under of six free throws, you know what? Anyway, it's just a dream, a spectacular dream all gone to dust. Gun rights got curtailed in some states. The ability of lawmakers to sneak out of session got curtailed in others. Okay, Oregon, narrowly anti-slavery Oregon. They're the ones who passed that one. So I don't know if democracy was on the ballot, but all sorts of other issues were. And now the people have spoken. Until next time when they reverse themselves. Or until this morning when they wake up to realize that all orphans business has been removed from Alabama probate courts. Yes, indeed. Success has a thousand parents. Failure is an orphan. Or in this case, in Alabama, the orphans also got a big win. Thank you, voters. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer of the show and of Not Even Mad, which will be posting tomorrow morning. Michelle Pesca, also dual-hatted COO of Peachfish Productions and Peachfish Projects. We could get into the organizational charts. I don't think that's a good use of anyone's time, right? Especially since you put in all that effort researching Prop 27, gambling on tribal lands. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening.